You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, again, uh, we're back to the Korean Peninsula on this episode, I guess. Mm-hmm. Can't seem to get away for more than five episodes at a time, it seems. But Korea's been busy. Um, you know, to very few people surprise, the U.S.-North Korea working level talks that were taking place this weekend, this past weekend in Stockholm, Sweden, ended up collapsing pretty quickly. Uh, it was sort of like a replay of what happened in Hanoi, just a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the causes of why the talks broke apart and why it wasn't really that surprising. Uh, and then for the second part of the discussion, Prashant, we'll talk a little bit about North Korea's first test of a unambiguously nuclear-capable ballistic missile. Uh, In fact, it's longest-range solid-fuel missile ever tested. Uh, They tested a new um, submarine-launched ballistic missile, so we'll talk a little bit about that and the significance of that event and where things might be going. Um, But yeah, where do you want to where do you want to kick things off today? I think we 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 can start probably with with the talks because I think you you kind of hit at the main point here, uh, which is you know, we've seen throughout this process of, you know, U.S. North Korea engagement under the Trump administration multiple times in which we've seen, you know, talks are either said to be, um, you know, promising or they're on life support or they're dead. Um, and I guess we're entering into another one of these periods, right, where we we had you know, over the weekend talks in uh, Stockholm, Sweden. Um, and very quickly, we saw, you know, within hours, actually, um, North Korea come out and saying that, no, these talks are not going very well. Um, and obviously the the headlines flowed from there um, showing that there might be, you know, another hiccup uh, in U.S. North Korea engagement. And I guess the best place to kind of start is, you know, how does this, uh, how do we make sense of this relative to the other periods that we were seeing, whether it's Hanoi or some of these other tests that the North Koreans have conducted? Um, you know, where are we in, the, in this whole situation? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a really good question. Um... So, you know, I'll I'll just briefly, I guess, mention the fact that I just wrote a book on North Korea. So I've been writing about the history of U.S.-North Korea diplomatic relations since basically 1993, uh, which was the first year that the two sides had a meeting on denuclearization. And a lot of um, what we saw last year was very novel in a way, right? So I think that's why a lot of people were optimistic, because uh, they pointed at the history of U.S.-North Korea talks, pointed at... The various causes for failure, the various modes of engagement, including at the working level, and said, all right, maybe it's good that Trump's shaking things up and we can do something at the summit level because obviously in the North Korean system, only Kim Jong-un can make decisions and actually negotiate. That hasn't really gone so well. So I guess what can be said about Stockholm is that the attempt in Stockholm, I think, was a lot more traditional, Um, traditional in the sense that it was the kind of U.S.-North Korea working level talks that took place under the Obama administration, the Bush administration, um, and even before. Um, that said, the circumstances of these talks are very different. Uh, North Korea is in a very different place in terms of its capabilities, in terms of its bargaining leverage. Uh, so when the North Koreans came to the table in Stockholm this weekend, I think they were they came there with a very different expectation. All right. So I'll talk a little bit about what that expectation was. Uh, so after Hanoi, uh, where, you know, for listeners that might not recall, the main reason the Hanoi summit fell apart was a mismatch between what was being offered and the price being charged. So the North Koreans were willing to offer up a few facilities for dismantlement, but their position basically since the Singapore summit on uh, June 12, 2018, was that the U.S. would have to put some sanctions relief up front 
to then unlock the next phase in their talks. So they were willing to offer the dismantlement of facilities at Yongbyon involved in the production of highly enriched uranium and plutonium, uh, usable fuel and nuclear weapons. Um, but to get there, the United States would first have to offer sanctions relief. And why would the U.S. offer sanctions relief in the North Korean theory? Well, because the North Koreans had undertaken sort of unilateral <clears throat> unilateral gestures, including the um, dismantlement of their nuclear testing site at Pungeri, although they did that in a reversible manner, and the announced moratorium on the testing of intercontinental range ballistic missiles, which was eventually expanded to also cover intermediate range ballistic missiles. Basically anything that you know could range U.S. territory, they said that they wouldn't test. Um, so the U.S. didn't do sanctions relief. Uh, there were other kinds of things that were on the table from the U.S. side in Hanoi, including a liaison office and things like that. So anyways, you know, fast forwarding to Sweden, um, the, you know, why are these working level talks? Why did they convene in the first place? Uh, because we had that summit over the summer, the June 30th meeting, which was kind of came out of nowhere, wasn't really supposed to happen. The North Korean position was that until you change your position, we are not going to engage with you, either at the working level or at the summit level. Kim Jong-un in April before the Workers' Party uh, called for the United States to take a bold decision. And they've been using sort of different versions of that phrase. Um, ambassador uh, Kim Jong-il, the former uh, North Korean ambassador to Vietnam, who's now the chief negotiator at the working level, after the talks broke down, said that he wanted a new calculating method from the United States. Again, a reference to the fact that the North Koreans do not want to do diplomacy on the terms that the United States is offering right now. And what are those terms? I think that's probably the most important thing to understand. So basically, since the beginning of this process, the U.S. has been of the view that in order for us to get anywhere with North Korea, what will have to happen is that the two sides will have to come to the negotiating table and agree on a roadmap. Uh, so what does a roadmap mean? Uh, it effectively means you're going to agree, uh, you're going to sit down with the North Koreans, you're going to get a piece of paper, and you're going to write down steps, you know, A through Z, identifying how we're going to get from A, which is where we are today, to Z, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Why are the North Koreans not interested in that? Well, it's, it's quite simple. It's because the North Koreans aren't actually offering to disarm, right? So Z would be defined as presumably North Korean disarmament. And depending on how you read the phrase denuclearization of the North um, of the Korean Peninsula, it might also mean American dis dismantlement. The North Koreans want an open-ended approach where, you know, we come to the table, we define step A, we define step B, we do step A, we do step B, then we meet again, we talk about C and D and so forth. Uh, so mm -hmm. that is the fundamental mismatch. And... In Stockholm, it seems like that wasn't really, we didn't really get anywhere on that front. Right. Uh, and so I, I guess the, the next uh, question, uh, to my mind at least, is, I mean, where does this leave uh, talks moving forward and, and the path to engagement? I mean, it did seem like, um, you know, the, the North Korean chief negotiator was was pretty blunt about <laughs> this the situation, about where talks were, right, mentioning that you know, there basically was no real change in, in the U.S. position uh, from where they were at uh, before. And that this sort of timeline that we've been talking about previously on the podcast, which is the end of the year timeline that the North Koreans have set for a so-called change in U.S. behavior, um, you know, still kind of remains. So, you know, for all the the, the change that, um, you know, the, that has been referenced before in terms of, you know, potentially the U.S. could agree to some sort of sanctions relief and, and the North Koreans could perhaps, uh, you know, figure out a way to compromise on things. It does appear, like like you mentioned, that there are some real fundamental disagreements between the United States and North Korea, not only about the sequencing and, and whether to discuss things like the roadmap, but also, I mean, the North Koreans seem to still continue to be pushing the position that 
I mean, they have in their view and in their mind, you know, made concessions already uh, with respect to uh, testing and so on and so forth. And they want the United States to to actually give concessions. Whereas for the for the United States, there needs to be, you know, sort of a at least an agreement on where the roadmap lies before these actual um, agreements or concessions are made. It doesn't seem like we're anywhere close to resolving that. And it also seems to be, I mean, as, as we've talked about before on this podcast, right? When we have these breakdowns and, and negotiations, we have to look at the broader context. And when we look at the broader context right now, we have a situation where, you know, the United States is inching towards a presidential election. Uh, Trump is now embroiled in this whole impeachment drama situation. Um, you have South Korea and Japan, um, you know, who have just um, uh, had their own issues with respect to an intelligence sharing pact uh, that we've talked about on the podcast previously. And the United States has these issues with its alliance partners, um, you know, particularly South Korea. Yeah. So this is a very kind of messy regional situation as we head towards the the kind of end of the year timeline that the North Koreans are advancing. So the big question is, I mean, how do you see things moving forward in the next, you know, the next couple of months that follow in the so-called deadline? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, I think, the big question. Um, look, I mean, my view about these talks in Stockholm, uh, you know, I favored diplomacy with the North Koreans. I wanted to talk to them back in 2015 when they didn't have an ICBM and a thermonuclear weapon. But I think the point that can be made about these Stockholm talks is that they were premature. Uh, they really weren't supposed to materialize, right? The North Koreans effectively defected on their own position. They said that, you know, they had said, I mean, Kim Jong-un said in April, we won't talk to you until you make a bold decision. So they weren't supposed to come to the working level talks because obviously there had been no indication that the U.S. had made that decision. The talks really materialized as a result, again, of that weird summit process where Trump and Kim made, um, met on June 30th. And, you know, that meeting, I think, has caused a lot of problems, not only in terms of the working level talks, but the North Koreans repeatedly continue to reference the fact that Trump apparently gave Kim Jong-un a personal assurance that exercises would be canceled indefinitely with South Korea. The White House has not clarified that, uh, to my knowledge. Um, you know, there's no readout about that meeting. It was an informal sort of summit. I mean, I, I consider it a summit. They spoke for about 15 minutes, but, you know, there were sort of major developments there. Uh, so, yeah, the North Koreans, I think, are continuing to um, make the most of their leverage. But I think, I think yeah, as you noted, the end-of-the-year deadline suggests that they're not going to sit around waiting for the United States to change its position forever. And, you know, I mean, to be fair to the U.S. side, um, I think I think the U.S. side did try to go into Stockholm with a slightly different mindset. Obviously, the roadmap issue still lingered, but at least the opening offer, I think, was a little bit better this time, right? So per reports uh, from people I trust, um, it sounded like the U.S. went to Stockholm with an offer for a snapback-type sanctions relief deal, where... North Koreans, um, the North Koreans would get sort of limited respite from sectoral sanctions on things like textiles, uh, which were banned under um, UN Security Council resolutions in 2017 after their ICBM testing. So they'd get respite from their textile sectoral uh, sanctions in exchange for shutting down a few facilities. And I think for the North Koreans, it was sort of a reverse Hanoi non-starter, right? So in mm -hmm. Hanoi, the North Koreans were charging too high of a price. They wanted complete lifting of all civilian clauses across five Security Council resolutions passed in 2016 and 2017. That was too high a price then. And now the North Koreans see what the U.S. is offering as a lowball offer. So that's fine. I mean, this is why you negotiate, right? Uh, nobody's going to accept the first offer that the other side has to make. Uh, but again, in, Han um, in Hanoi and Stockholm, it doesn't seem that there was any 
effort on the part of the North Koreans to do that. And, and it's actually more understandable that that didn't happen in Stockholm because at the working level, that's simply just not how the North Koreans work. I mean, they're not going to come to the table. You know, Ambassador Kim Jong-il, um, as, as skilled a negotiator as he might be, is not authorized to make sort of on-the-fly decisions. Uh, he receives his talking points beforehand. He, you know, he goes to the negotiating table, and he tries to walk away with the best possible deal that he can for the North Korean side based on his instructions. So if the U.S. side wants to have an open-ended discussion, it can't. But then again, you know, I mean, we could talk about Hanoi, this, um, this counterfactual that I talked about earlier where people were optimistic that the fact that we're having a leadership-level process means that we can actually have negotiations. And the problem in Hanoi was that Kim Jong-un um, I mean, he's not he's not a genius, right? He doesn't he couldn't talk mm-hmm. intelligently about the various facilities at Yongbyon or sit down and have a negotiation with the U.S. side. He expected to be handed something on a platter. Um, so, unfortunately, I think the way things are going right now, um, my sort of I guess realistic view is that we're probably going to cross that end of the year deadline. Um, it's not a, you know there's not a lot of time left about three months. Uh, less than three months uh, before Kim Jong-un will be giving another New Year's Day address describing his strategic objectives for the year ahead. His past few New Year's addresses have been pretty telling of what he's going to do. So at the beginning of this year, he said, you know, if the U.S. doesn't come around on the issue of, quote, corresponding measures or sanctions relief, North Korea will have to find a new way. And um, a lot of North Korea experts debated what that meant. And, you know, I have a few ideas. Uh, we can we can talk about the fact that we're now seeing a resumption of highly provocative missile testing in North Korea. Maybe that's the new way. The new way is just the old way. They're going to continue pushing ahead with their capabilities. Maybe the new way is doubling or tripling down on relations with either China or Russia or both. Um, North <laughs> Korea historically has been quite skilled at thriving in times of great power competition, uh, right? So Kim Il-sung made the best of the Sino-Soviet split. And uh, North Korea might now see itself similarly positioned as the U.S. and China begin to uh, intensify in their competition. So that might be the new way. Or the new way might mm-hmm. be something else entirely. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, all this said, I think the North Koreans still do really need sanctions relief, right? They're not, they're not sitting pretty where they are. Yes, they have capabilities. Yes, they have more leverage than they've ever had in diplomatic talks with the United States. But they don't have unlimited time. I mean, the North Korean economy is going to, I think, start seeing increasing pressure, right? I mean, I'm not of the belief that sanctions are going to cause the Kim regime to change its calculus on the value of nuclear weapons at all, but sanctions relief would really have been a a very welcome development for the regime. And if they're not going to get that, I think, um, you know, unfortunately, we're going to go into a 2020 with um, all sorts of possibilities open, right? I mean, I like you, I mean, you referenced the fact that Trump is sort of entering the dark days of, I guess, Nixon's final moments when uh, all sorts of crazy things began to happen. And I think we're starting to see that in terms of foreign policy, especially with the decision to mm-hmm. uh, abandon abandon the U.S. allied Kurds in northern Syria, for example, a very sudden decision. Uh, so one of the things that I'm concerned about is that, you know, we talk about how unpredictable Trump is. Um, maybe that unpredictability cranks up to 11 when we enter a new year. The North Koreans potentially begin testing ICBMs again. And we we're back where we were in 2017. Fire and fury, uh, you know, take two. And that, I think, is is very dangerous. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a concern that I definitely share as well. I think it's it's also a good opportunity to segue into the other development that happened last week, um, and, and that was the launch of the, I guess, initial ballistic missile test that came out on Wednesday, and we found out on Thursday, North Korean state media announced that it was sort of a 
quote unquote new type of sub- submarine launched uh, ballistic missile or SLBM. Uh, I guess the the good place to start with this one is, um, you know, we've seen a number of tests conducted by the North Koreans, and I think we've emphasized repeatedly on this podcast that. You know, even though there there's um, you know a tendency sometimes by some folks to say this is you know sort of ceremonial and these tests are you know not something that um, are, are substantive; they're more symbolic. And and Trump himself has indicated that you know these are these are sort of short range tests that you know these are actually pretty significant developments. I mean, the North Koreans are clearly developing their own capabilities with these tests, and they see this as both a symbolic and a substantive indicator of what those capabilities are, even as we see these developments in, in U.S.-North Korea engagement. So I guess the first place to start with this SLBM test is, I mean, why is this um, so significant? And what does this tell us about uh, North Korea's capabilities? And and I guess the secondary question is, you know, the always a question that's raised, which is why now? Yeah, no, all, all really good questions. Um, so what exactly did they do? So this year has been different from 2018, right? In 2018, the North Koreans didn't conduct a single ballistic missile test. Um, Diplomacy was underway. You know, we were about to see peace in our time. The North Koreans were talking to South Korea. They had multiple summits. Um, Things were great. And this year, uh, beginning with that ominous New Year's Day address and, of course, the collapse in Hanoi, Kim Jong-un goes back to North Korea. He appears sort of internally besieged, uh, sort of recalculating his position. And then in May... We begin to see the beginning of the first ballistic missile testing campaign since 2017. Of course, everything tested is short range. The Trump administration ignores these tests, uh, right? John Bolton being the one exception. I mean, Bolton's now left the administration, but uh, Bolton pointed out that these tests violated UN Security Council resolutions going back to Resolution 1718 from 2016. Mm-hmm. But Trump called them very standard. Uh, he said that the tests don't, him and Pompeo said that the tests don't violate Kim Jong-un's promises to Trump about long-range missile testing. So for the North Koreans, if they had done missile testing to get the United States' attention, to convey the message that, hey, if you don't do a deal with us, we're going to keep improving our capabilities, that message clearly didn't get through. Uh, but on Ooh. the other side, the North Koreans basically realized that testing missiles was free, right? It was cost-free. In the past, they have to be very careful about the kinds of capabilities that they test, because um, the the spirit of the sanctions regime is designed to um, prevent North Korea from qualitatively advancing its capabilities. So, w- with all that said, so you know they tested, they did twenty one tests uh, between May and September of short range systems. Uh, you know, a a short range quasi ballistic missile, a few multiple launch rocket artillery systems, and then. Finally, uh, in early October, um, they appear to have tested the Pukuksong-3, which is the largest solid propellant missile ever seen in North Korea. And I think that's the big kind of underlying takeaway from that. Uh, And that's a capability that a lot of us who work on North Korean nuclear forces and ballistic missile capabilities have been very worried about if they get to a point where they have these very large solid fuel missiles. Uh, Why solid fuel specifically? Um, all of North Korea's long-range missiles, including its ICBMs, are liquid propellant systems, which need to be fueled and maintained and prepared for use. So they're a little clunky, and that's good for um, you know giving the United States, South Korea, and Japan a fighting chance in a conflict to take out these systems before they can be used. Mm-hmm. Solid propellant makes this a lot more difficult. It reduces the time in which the North Koreans can deploy one of their launchers and launch a ballistic missile. 
Uh, this missile specifically is a submarine launch system. They didn't test it from a submarine. They tested it from an underwater platform. It appears to be larger than the Pukuksong-1, which was their first-generation submarine-launch ballistic missile that they started testing in 2015. And this sort of goes back to a broader theme of the Kim Jong-un era 2017 onward, which is that a lot of the capabilities that we've seen tested represent a sort of strange modernization in North Korea. They're sort of iterating on older designs, improving them. Um, this, you know, this missile could probably fly to around 2000 kilometers, which means that if North Korea put this on a submarine and let's be reminded that we saw them building a new submarine in July. So they, Mm -hmm. I think gave us pretty good hints that we're going to hear about the submarine launch missile system, um, or submarine launch ballistic missile program. Again, uh, if North Korea put this missile on a submarine, flushed it out to the center of the sea of Japan, they could range all of South Korean territory and all of Japan's four major islands. Um, so Mm -hmm. it's, it's a real capability. It should concerned the United States, I think, more than it has. Trump obviously has said, I think, very little. I think he, I think Time Magazine had him actually saying that he didn't care about this test simply because he was so distracted by um, all of the impeachment drama going on in Washington, D.C. So the North Koreans, I think, will likely see few costs. The Security Council met today and the Europeans uh, took the lead on condemning North Korea. They didn't condemn the test specifically, but they called on North Korea to denuclearize. So that's where we are. I mean, the North Koreans are going back to testing. And, you know, this reminds me of an old message that the North Koreans would give Americans in negotiations in the early 2000s and the 1990s, which was that the longer the the U.S. drags its feet in doing a deal with the North, uh, their capabilities would continue to improve. So the longer you wait, the, you know, the, the greater the cost that you're going to pay in terms of capabilities. And I think we're really starting to see that. So every everything that the North Koreans test is knowledge that they gain. It's really a genie that can't be put back into the bottle, at least in the short term. Uh, so yeah, it's a it, it's a pretty grave development in my view. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, agreed. And I think going back to the point you made earlier, I do think the combination of you know the North Koreans sort of you know testing the limits of where they can go with respect to these tests, um, and you know the uh, President Trump, who you know I think for given the troubles he's facing domestically, you know, might not have, you know, as much bandwidth to deal with foreign policy issues like North Korea um, and and White House officials as well. Um, there is a risk that the North Koreans will ultimately push against a limit where, you know, Trump feels like he needs to respond. And if that response is, you know, sort of unpredictable, it, it does raise, you know, um, you know, troubling questions about where we, we are with respect to uh, U.S.-North Korea relations. I think that that's a legitimate concern. Uh, I think the the other question, um, and you noted this in, in in a piece that you wrote for for the diplomat, um, y- you talked about you know how the test was conducted as well, right? So the fact that um, you know, for example, Kim Jong Un himself uh, wasn't present at the test, and you know, could this be sort of a, a symbol or a message that the North Koreans are are, are giving? Obviously, very hard to, hard to tell, you know, what exactly the North Koreans are messaging with respect to that. Um, and I think the other part of the question that, that that's important to address is, I mean, and you hinted at this before, um, the SLBM uh, capability, you know, what are the prospects of it moving forward? It would seem like the North Koreans would have to eventually test this from, from a submarine, um, given that they haven't done this now, and that they would need to build up their submarine capabilities for this to actually, you know, be be realized to the full capability in terms of its maximum potential, but it does raise a question. I mean, I mean, we do know 
some uh, details about where the North Korean submarine capabilities are. I mean, they they have you know diesel electric submarines, which are not obviously highly capable submarines, but they are developing these capabilities. So I guess the other big question, to my mind at least, is you know we've seen these tests, but what are the uh, future signs that we need to look out for to see that the North Koreans are are trying to develop this capability uh, even further as as the months and years progress, right? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Uh, so first on the point about Kim Jong-un not being there. So actually, since I wrote that article for us, um, uh, Colin Zwerko, who's a journalist at NK News, contacted me and he did some very good work analyzing the images that the North Koreans had released of the test. And what was very interesting was that, uh, you know, North Korea does usually two batches of imagery releases around missile tests. They do the ones that come out through their news agency and then the ones through Korean Central Television. And he noticed that there were differences between the two sets of images. And the North Koreans actually photoshopped certain things out. And one of those things appeared to be Kim Jong-un's cell phone on the table during the test. So that raises a very interesting possibility that Kim Jong-un was present, but for some reason, either he chose not to be portrayed on camera, maybe he was having a bad hair day or he was sick, or um, the North Koreans specifically excluded him. So anyways, uh, I'm just going to mention that for now. I need to think a little bit more about what that might actually mean. On, on the capability itself, um, you know, I sort of find myself in the Goldilocks zone, I guess, in terms of the North Korean submarine threat. I think a lot of analysts basically see the North Korean submarine program as a total paper tiger, something that we shouldn't worry about at all. I'm not in that boat at all. And then others, uh, you know, I, I did a CNN segment this summer, I recall, and there was an analyst who was worrying about North Korean submarines sort of hiding off the coast of Los Angeles and, you know, nuking California out of the blue. So I'm also not in that boat where I think that's something that the North Koreans are going to be able to do. But I think I think this is something serious, right? I mean, um, a few years ago when the North Koreans first introduced their submarine launch ballistic missile program, people made the point that, oh, you know, oh, they just want to be in the big boys club when it comes to nuclear weapons. And they're trying to, you know, they're pursuing this as a prestige move. Uh, they're not going to be serious about this because their submarines are outdated and loud. And yes, that's true. But the fact is that if North Korea in a conflict can flush out even a you know even an old Romeo class submarine, they'll be very easy for uh, you know Allied anti-submarine warfare capabilities to pick up and deal with. It's still something that you have to plan for in a conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're if they're live nuclear warheads out at sea, um, threatening South Korea and Japan, and in particular threatening South Korea and Japan from angles where um, terrestrial missile defense systems are actually going to be unable to cover them, right? So the THAAD battery that's in South Korea is pointing north. It's pointing north because it anticipates that the threats it's going to be dealing with are going to be launched from North Korean soil. But what that means is uh, the interceptors won't be ready to deal with a submarine-launched ballistic missile that's coming from a different angle. Uh, So that's one complication. And also from the anti-submarine warfare perspective, um, you know, people I've talked to kind of uh, who know more about submarine operations than I do point out that, I mean, anti-submarine warfare uh, can turn into looking for a needle in a haystack, right? The, the North Koreans have a very large sub, a submarine fleet. In the East Sea, their uh, Myungdo submarine base uh, has, I believe, scores of submarines available to them. So they can flush all of those out. And in a crisis, you know, if you're, if you're destroying North Korean submarines, uh, you're going to have to be able to pick apart the ones carrying ballistic missiles from the ones that aren't. And that might not be trivial. Uh, so it's not it's not something that we you know can just brush aside as a total kind of paper tiger, um, but again it's not it's not the the thing that I worry about the most. I mean the North Koreans land uh, their land based capabilities I think have also gotten quite advanced and merit serious consideration. Um, but yeah, I think I think you know next year on this podcast I feel like we're going to be having a lot more of these conversations about uh, North Korean capabilities and uh, ballistic missile <laughs> testing. Um, but Prashant, I think we'll uh, end it there for today. How does that sound? 
Sounds good. All right, great. Um, so I guess kind of on the theme of the episode, uh, I'm just going to kind of take the liberty to just announce that I just finished um, and submitted my book manuscript called Kim Jong-un and the Bomb, uh, and that's going to be published next summer by uh, Hearst Publishers and Oxford University Press. It's available for pre-order on Amazon uh, UK and US. So if listeners are interested in more about North Korean issues, uh, specifically on the nuclear forces and strategy side, uh, that might be interesting. Um, but uh, before we close, a word from our sponsor. Uh, so this episode of the Asia Geopolitics podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of The Diplomat, the Asia Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that. It really helps get the word about a word out about the show. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, just feel free to reach out to either me or Prashant on social media or over email. So, uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.